The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. How are you all doing this morning? Um, I've entitled this, Discipleship Involves Mothering and Fathering. Anybody get that? Yeah? (laughs) I mean, if you look at the text, in this text, which is a very different text, Paul is just kind of pouring his heart out. He talks about mothering and he talks about fathering. So we're going to try to uh, make some sense of that this morning. So we're continuing this morning in our study of 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 12 this morning. Now, I want you to keep in mind that in chapters 2 and 3, Paul is defending himself against critics. And these people are attacking Paul, because if they can destroy Paul, if they can make him look bad, if they can, you know, make people think bad of him, then they destroy the gospel message that he's preaching. So you destroy the messenger, and then the message is questioned, you know, like, what? Well, I don't know, if this guy's this bad, maybe what he's saying is not so good after all. So that's what's going on here. And Paul says over and over in this letter to the Thessalonians, he keeps saying, remember, Remember, because he, he's asked, he's calling on them to be witnesses. And he said, remember, I, I was there with you. Remember how we behaved ourselves. Now, we ended last time with verse 7, where Paul pictured himself as a nursing mother, tenderly and affectionately caring for her own children. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. That's a pretty poignant picture there of Paul in in his affection for these people. Now, last week we talked a little bit about the word gentle here. Anybody remember what we talked about? What's significant about this? All right. I said that some ancient manuscripts here have the word gentle, which is apios, but others have a different Greek word, one letter difference. It's napios. Napios is infant, Apios is gentle. The evidence from the manuscripts, though, favors strongly the word infants, although you'll hardly find that in a translation. It is, it's a much better, it's much, much more attested to that it actually says infants. We were like infants among you. And he, he's trying to say that they were not throwing their weight around, they were not bossing them around, they were not trying to put demands on them. We're, we're just like infants among you. We weren't pressing things. We weren't trying to get you to do anything. Uh, So gentle would fit, but I don't think that's the word that was there. Now, I think it's interesting that in this text, Paul uses both feminine imagery and masculine imagery to describe his discipling of these believers. At times, he says, I was like a mother to you. At times, I was like a father to you. He says this in Galatians. 419, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, hopefully we get that that is a female imagery there, okay? I know our society is so messed up that now I hear all this stuff about men having babies. I'm like, uh, no, that doesn't work out too well. No, Paul is not confused. He is using feminine imagery here. So what is he trying to say by this imagery? What kind of picture is he trying to paint for them. 
Well, I think what he's saying is a mother is someone who sacrifices her needs to meet the needs of her offspring. She gives of her life to her children because of her love for them. And a nursing mother just pictures the constant demand that that child has on the mother, and the mother is willing to meet that need continually. It's a pretty powerful imagery, I think. So there is a mothering aspect to discipleship. I mean, if you're going to train people, you're going to care for people, you're going to raise them up in the Lord, you've got to be available to them. You've got to care about them. And so Paul's basically saying, you know, he's being accused of different things. He says, far from being greedy, far from being licentious, far from being a flatterer and seeking power or prestige or sex or money or desiring to manipulate or abuse anybody, he said, we were like tender nursing mothers when we were with you. In other words, he's saying, we gave you around-the-clock, personal, intimate care. That's what a mother does, a nursing mother. And Paul was an imitator of God. We know that. He stresses that a lot in his epistles. And he applied, God had applied this maternal image to himself, so Paul does the same thing. Look at what the Lord says in Isaiah 66, 11, and 12. For you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knee. So here we see Yahweh is representing his relationship with Israel as a mother caring for her young. And so Paul does this same thing. Now as we move into verse 8, Verse 8 kind of serves as a transition verse. It follows up on Paul's analogy of a nursing mother by calling attention to his deep affection for the Thessalonian saints. He was intimately involved in their lives. He served them. He opened his life up to them. And you can't be more intimately involved than a nursing mother. Paul wasn't there to make a buck for himself. He wasn't there to try to enrich himself or get glory for himself. He was there because he loved these people. He cared about them. And he wanted to see them have the fullness of God in their lives. So he was there giving of himself to minister to them. He says in verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Very tender, very affectionate language that Paul uses here to speak of his love for this congregation. He uses language here that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's even rare in the literature of this era. This word affectionately here is from the Greek word himeromai. Himeromai means to have a kindly feeling to long for someone. The word appears nowhere else in the New Testament, but it's used once in the Septuagint, in Job 3.21. He says, who long, and this is the word, himeromai, who long for death. <laughs> who does that? But it comes not. 
and dig for more than for hidden treasure. In other words, he, this is a picture of someone who is suffering and is just longing for death. I want to end this suffering. I want to get out of this misery. I'm longing for death. And so he uses this word. In its only New Testament use, it conveys a positive aspect, though. The tender sense of a mother's attraction for a child. In Greek literature, it was a strong term of affection. It's used on grave inscriptions describing the parent's sad yearning for the deceased child. It's a deep affection. It's a great attraction. And that's what Paul uses this unusual word here, being affectionately desirous of you. He says, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. The word share here is the Greek word methodidomi, and carries the idea, this is an interesting word, listen, it carries the idea of giving something of which you retain a part. So he's talking about giving them the gospel. We're giving you the gospel, but we retain a part. In other words, we're sharing with you, but what we're sharing we have is part of us. So we're sharing the gospel. A cool word, I think, that he uses there. And then he says the gospel of God. That's what they're sharing. Now, Paul emphasizes the gospel of God in 1 Thessalonians. He uses it in 1, 5, 2, 2, 2, 4, 2, 8, 2, 9, 3, 2. And then 2 Thessalonians, he uses it in 1, 8 and 2, 14. Over and over, he talks about the gospel of God because the gospel is the foundation for everything in the Christian life. People, if you are wrong on the gospel, you're damned. This is the bottom line of Christianity, all right? The gospel. So what exactly is he referring to her? What is the gospel of God? Well, what is it as Paul uses it? And I, and I guess that's an important question. You know, a non-important question is, what does this mean to you? Okay? Because everybody's got an opinion, right? But important question is, what did it mean to Paul? Because Paul's the one writing this. And I think when we think of the gospel, we think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, right? That's pretty typical what we think of. And we get that from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now to us, that's the Gospel. Yeshua died for our sins, He was buried, and He was raised from the dead. But is that all it's about? And again, what did Paul mean when he said this, and what did this mean to Paul's audience? When Paul's audience heard him talk about the gospel, what did they think of? They didn't have 1 Corinthians 15 at the time. All right, So what did it mean to them? And that's an important question because we need to understand the historical context if we're going to understand what Paul's saying. Historical analysis involves seeking a knowledge of the setting and the situation in which the books of the Bible were written. Because too often, we just come from an egocentric perspective that assumes that whatever the Bible says, it says to us in our generation. Yet that hermeneutic ignores the historical context. 
When interpreting Scripture, you must always be aware that every verse, every line, every statement has just one interpretation. There's many applications, but we need to find that one interpretation. The word gospel here is a translation of the Greek noun euangelion. Anybody know what gospel means or euangelion means? What? Good news. Good news. That makes sense, right? People often use, well, that's the gospel truth. In other words, they think gospel means truth, but gospel means good news. That's what it means. All right? The Greek verb, euangelizo, means to bring or announce good news. And both words are derived from the noun anglos, which means a messenger. So in classical Greek, a messenger was one who brought a message of victory or other political or personal news that caused joy. Now, in addition, euangelizomai in the middle voice meant to speak as a messenger of gladness to proclaim good news. And the noun euangelion meant a technical term for a messenger of victory, though it's also used for a political or a private message that brings joy. So somebody's bringing good news. That's the essence of what this is about. Now, to a Jew in Paul's day, the word gospel looked back to Isaiah. And the Greek verb euangelizo is used in the Septuagint version here of Isaiah 40, 9 and 10. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, heralder of good news. That's the gospel. That's a euangelizo. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of euangelizo. Lift up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold the Lord Yahweh comes with might and his army rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Does that ring a bell to anybody, those ending verses there? He's coming and he's got a reward with him. We see that in Matthew 16, 27, 28. We see it in Revelation 22. It's referring to the second coming. All right, he's coming, he's coming to bring rewards. Let's go down to Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings Yongalidzo, who publishes peace, who brings Yongalidzo of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, the voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. So Paul sees Isaiah 52:7 as speaking of the gospel, and that's very clear because Paul uses this verse in Romans 10:15. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, now he's quoting Isaiah 52:7, how beautiful on the feet of those who preach the good news. So the messenger was to bring to Jerusalem the good news of deliverance from Babylon and the personal return of Yahweh to deliver them from exile. So the Jews would hear Paul say that he was sent as a messenger of the good news of the arrival of the Messiah, Israel's anointed king, to bring God's people back from exile. They would understand that the salvific promises of God made to Israel are now being fulfilled. That's the good news. Well, how would the Gentiles understand the gospel? Was it good news to them of Israel's salvation, of a return from exile? 
No, that's not how they viewed it at all. In the Mediterranean world, the fastest growing religion was the imperial cult, the worship of Caesar. In ancient Rome, the phenomena known as the cult of Caesar arose from the worship of the Roman emperors. The emperors just declared themselves God. So you worship me. Okay, I'm a deity now, you worship me. That's what the Roman emperors were doing. And as the imperial cult grew, its good news, the good news of the imperial cult was Caesar is the son of God. He is deity. He's the Lord of the whole world, claiming allegiance from everybody in return for bringing salvation and justice to the world. Rome brings salvation. Resistance was met with crucifixion. And the system was based surely on power. Now, the Greek word Lord is the word kurios. And it's the word by which the citizens of Roman Empire would acknowledge the divinity of Caesar. Within the empire, there was this test phrase that was used to check the loyalty of the people. And it was kairos kaiser. Caesar is Lord. That's what they would say. All right? So the good news was the news of Rome that Caesar is Lord. Now, comparison of the good news of the Caesar cult with Paul's words shows a deliberate parody of the pagan message. They're saying Caesar's Lord. He said, no, Yeshua is Lord. And Paul's readers would have understood this. And he must have intended them to understand this. Paul's ideas do not derive from the Caesar cult. They confront it. A lot of parodies like this in the Bible. They're saying Caesar is Lord, and he's saying, no, you got it wrong. Yeshua is Lord. That's his message. N.T. Wright says this. When Paul refers to the gospel, he's not referring to a system of salvation, though, of course, the gospel implies and contains this, nor even to the good news that there is now a way of salvation open to all, but rather the proclamation that the crucified Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead and thereby demonstrates to be both Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. The gospel is not you can be saved, and here's how. The gospel for Paul is Jesus Christ is Lord. And you got to try to put this in the Roman context. All right, the Romans are saying Caesar is Lord. If you disagree with this, what happens? Crucifixion. So they crucified Christ, and what happened? He overcame the power of Rome. He beat death. And so he's saying, no, they have crucifixion. It didn't touch our Lord. He is Lord. Yeshua is Lord. Wright goes on to say, It is a royal summons to submission, to obedience, to allegiance. And the form that this submission and obedient allegiance takes is, of course, faith. That is, why Paul, that is what Paul means by the obedience of faith. Faith itself, defined conveniently by Paul as belief that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, is the work of the Spirit accomplished through the proclamation. So this is how the gospel was viewed in that time period. Israel's looking for a Messiah. Rome is thinking Caesar's the one. He's saying, no, Paul's confronting them all and saying, no, Yeshua, He is Lord. Now, he calls it the gospel of God, and that's significant, all right? It's important that Paul makes people understand that when you hear the euangelion of the Roman Empire, that's not really the good news, all right? The good news comes from God, not Caesar. He's emphasizing the gospel is from God. It, it wasn't a message that Paul thought up on his own. 
It didn't come to us from the collective wisdom of religious thinkers down through the century. It comes to us from God. It is the good news that God has provided for us a way of reconciliation to Himself. Now, we have to understand this. The gospel in Paul's day was under attack. The gospel in our day is under attack. Okay? It's no different. It's being attacked today by the health wealth heresy that teaches believers you get saved and Christ will cure you of every disease and you give you financial prosperity. People are preaching that as the gospel. What happens when somebody comes to Christ then and they're sick? Or they come to Christ and they're poor and things don't change? Well, the gospel must not be true. Yes, the gospel's true. That's not the gospel. The gospel, I think, is attacked today by the lordship movement that teaches, listen, if you trust Christ, if you become a Christian, you're going to live an obedient life to Christ, just flat out obedient. You're going to live that way. And if you don't live that way, you're not really saved. That's an attack on the gospel. The gospel is believe on the Lord, Yeshua, the Christ, and you will be saved. There's not a performance involved there. Once you come to Christ, you ought to follow Christ. But you're not paying for anything, okay? This is, this is all of grace. Now, the gospel is attacked by the church of Christ today that says you must be baptized by immersion by a church of Christ minister or you cannot be saved. That's a false gospel, people. It is attacked today by universalists who say you don't need to be saved. Everybody's saved. So we don't even need the gospel. The gospel of grace is constantly under siege. And people, this is the foundation. You've got to build on a proper foundation. You've got to build on the gospel of grace, that it is all of God. Paul says, we're ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. In other words, we're there for you. We're available for you. Again, this is a picture of a nursing mother who sacrifices her time to take care of her children. It shows the costliness of the ministry as well as the love that these apostles had for these people. I mean, you can't find anything, I don't think, more affectionate, more tender than this passage in 2 Thessalonians here. That Paul just pouring out his heart to these people. And it's interesting that these people he's pouring out his heart to are... The only, it's the only place in Scripture where you find a church that Paul holds up as a model to other churches. These believers as models to other believers. I mean, they're just living the Christian life. And as we're going to see in the coming verse, they sacrifice their lives without charge. They toil to the point of weariness. They struggle against many hardships. They work long hours, part of the day, part of the night, making tents all in an effort to demonstrate to the Thessalonians that they loved them and only wanted what was best for them. He didn't want to give any occasion for someone to accuse him of anything. Now, verse 8, as we said, serves as a bridge to what he's about to say in verse 9 and 10. He already referred to his example of not being deceitful or impure. He says his motives weren't to please man. His motives were to please God. God is the one who examines our hearts. He said he never came with flattering speech. He never tried to manipulate people to his advantage. He was not motivated by greed or personal glory. Rather, he says, he was gentle. He was as an infant, 
a loving spiritual mother, he showed his tender affection for these spiritual children. Now, he's going to kind of switch, and he compares himself to a loving father who trains his children by example and verbal instruction. And I, and I think one thing we, we got to see here is to, for a home to be a home, it needs a mother and a father. That's how God intended it to be, because there's different aspects to that. Now, let me ask you a very difficult question in our day. Tell me one thing, just one thing that you know for absolutely sure about a father. One, you know for sure, you guarantee it. If this guy's a father, you know one thing about him. He's a man. Okay, he's a man. Now, listen, yeah, we're too woke. <laughs> that is something that in our culture that we sadly have to establish. Our culture is trying to tell us men can have babies. I don't know who's dumb enough to believe some of this nonsense, okay, but it doesn't work. And I don't care how woke you are, men aren't having babies. So if a guy is a, a father, it's a man. Now notice what Paul told the Corinthians. He said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Now that is one confusing command today. Why? Because masculinity is under attack in our culture. Okay? It is. It's under attack. Look at Time Magazine. The modern male. Put on your makeup. You know, make yourself look feminine. Here's the problem, people. The feminists have convinced many to believe that men are toxic. Masculinity is toxic. It is evil. We all need to be more like women. I received an email this morning, and it was timely, very timely. This morning when I got up, this email is there. And this man said this, My daughter attends a Christian school, and they are studying evolving faith. And a book by Sarah Besley called Jesus Feminist. On their site, they list all the pronouns which endorse the idea of transgender. These ideas and infiltration and acceptance by the church is very scary, he says. I agree. It's, it's very scary. You should, see some, you should see some of the pictures I found. This is, a, this is a mild picture, okay? If it bothers you, good. This should bother you. The church today is following the culture. It's trying to fit in. Men today are apologizing for being men. Well, if you're confused as to what it means when Paul says, act like a man, the very next command in the verse is explanatory of the previous command. Act like men, be strong. There you go. Be strong. The command for men to be strong, this is counterculture. The culture is telling us anything but be strong. Men today are just, they're weaker, they're more emotionally, mentally, than past generations. I mean, today, you, we have safe spaces in colleges. So if they hear something they don't like, they can run to the safe space. When 50 years ago, kids 16, 17 stormed the beaches. 
It's just died, slaughtered. But that they did that because men were different. They were weren't afraid. They didn't need a safe space. There weren't a bunch of snowflakes like we have today. Our culture is doing this. I I I really believe that it's more than just information and psychological manipulation. I believe part of the food supply, we're just destroying testosterone from men. And we're just loading them up with estrogen and saying, come on, you guys, get that voice a little higher. Now listen, this little phrase, act like men, is one word in the Greek. It's the verb andridzomai. This is a very interesting verb. It means to conduct yourself in a courageous way. Men are to have courage, and they are to be strong. This is the only time this verb appears in the New Testament. But, it's used 24 times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And so we go back to the Greek translation, and we look there in the Tanakh, we can see how this word is used over and over. For example, it's used in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Be strong... That's andridzomai. Be strong and courageous. Those are connected, okay? Don't fear or be in dread of them. For it is Yahweh your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Men are to be strong. Men are to be courageous. Deuteronomy 31.7 Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong! Act like a man! Be courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that Yahweh has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. Again, andridzomai. As David was dying, he said to his son Solomon, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Act like a man and show yourself a man. Be strong. Be courageous. This is what God meant men to do. He meant us to be strong. That's why, listen, if the world's trying to make a man something, you know it's God's view is the opposite of whatever the world's going, okay? Now listen, please hang with me here and try not to get offended, okay? Because I'm just trying to give you the scriptures, okay? Men are to be strong. They're to be courageous. On the other hand... Women are pictured in the Bible as weak. Okay, now listen to this. Most of these contexts that we're looking at, this is important, are battle context, war context, killing, destroying. Men, be strong, be courageous. Women, on the other hand, are weak. Let me show you a few texts. Isaiah 19, 16. And that day the Egyptians will be like women. That's not a compliment. Okay? The Assyrians were attacking the Egyptians. And he says, in that day, the Egyptians, they're going to be like women. They're going to be weak. They're going to tremble with fear before the hand that Yahweh of hosts shakes over them. Jeremiah 50, 37. A sword against her horse and against her chariots and against all the foreign troops in the midst that they may become women. 
A sword against all her treasures that they may be plundered. Again, they'll become weak like women when they see this battle. They'll cave. They'll need a safe space. Jeremiah 51.30 The warriors of Babylon have ceased fighting. They remain in their strongholds. Their strength has failed. They have become women. Her dwellings are on fire. Her bars are broken. He said their strength has failed. They just became women. They don't have strength. They don't have courage. Nahum 3.13 Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemy. Fire has devoured your bars. So women people, listen, are the weaker sex. Now I want you to notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.7. He says, likewise husbands, husbands, you got this? Live with your wives in an understanding way. That's one of the most difficult verses in Scripture, okay? Understand your women, he says. Now, we're not equipped to speak the language, so it takes a lot of research, okay? <laughs> but understand your women. And then he says this, watch. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they're heirs with you of the grace of life, so your prayers won't be hindered. Guys, live with your wives in an understanding way, or your prayers are going to be hindered. Now, By weaker vessel here, listen, weaker vessel is not a question of spiritual strength. It's not a question of intellectual strength or strength of character. I think the idea here, weaker vessel, is referring to emotional and physical strength. Whether women want to admit it or not, whether they like it or not, doesn't make any difference. God has designed women with the strong need to have provision and protection given to them by men in exchange for loving service rendered to the men. Men are to be strong. They're the ones to do battle. They're the ones to be the protectors. And listen to me. So stupid I even have to say this. There is a difference between the sexes. Our society is doing everything they can to erase that. They want a unisex movement. They want everything gender neutral. No, gender neutral. That is the stupidest thing. Go try to milk a bull. See how that works out for you, okay? They don't play that gender neutral stuff, all right? Our society is doing everything they can to destroy the distinction. Why? Again, you have to question. If they're against it, God must be for it. Believers... My personal opinion is I don't think you should have to closely scrutinize a person to tell whether they're male or female. Men ought to look like men. Women ought to look like women. God created sexes. He created them to be distinct. I see some of these new fashion show men on these runway. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. I don't even know what it is. You know, it's like... Wow, that's the craziest thing I ever saw. (laughs) Listen, man, God created us to be strong. He created us to be the courageous sex. How do we do that? We need to all just run to the gym, start lifting weights, taking steroids. We'll be strong. No, let me show you how to do that. Okay, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. The idea here is Paul is saying, in my human weakness, I realize I need God. 
So my power is made perfect. I'm more powerful when I'm weak because I'm trusting God. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. When I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak in myself, I trust strength. Listen, we are strong when we realize our own inadequacies and we trust in God for His strength and endurance and wisdom. Men, our strength comes from dependence upon God. Trusting Him. Okay, you're in battle and you know you either trust God, his, your life is in His hands, you can be bold, you can be courageous in the face of war. And I think when men aren't fulfilling their roles, as is happening in our society today, when they're not taking their responsibilities to be strong and courageous and doing what God created us to do, we not only hurt ourselves, we hurt the women around us because they need men. We hurt the future generation of our children because they don't even know what a man looks like. And we hurt society as large. There's just a lot of damage being done right now by the culture. And listen, I don't believe for a second this is predominant in our culture. I think the news media makes it predominant. I think most of America is repulsed by most of this stuff. But we don't know it because we only hear the megaphone, you know, the liberals out there pushing the agenda of everything that's perverted. So Paul says, listen, act like men. Be strong. Now, before we leave this subject, to avoid developing the caveman mentality, you know what that is, right? Yeah. I'm man, I'm strong, I'm the leader. You take your club, you knock them out, you drag them in the cave by their hair. No, that, you know, that's not what he's talking about here, okay? So to avoid that type of mentality, look what Paul says to the men in the very next verse. Let all that you do be done in love. The perfect balance of Scripture, people. Men, act like men. Be strong, but let whatever you do be done in love. All right. That was extra. Let's go back to our text. <laughs> Sorry to get so wound up. I, some, some things just get me excited. Pretty much everything in the Bible gets me excited. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 2.9 For you remember, again, this remembering. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So again, he starts out, he's appealing to what they know. I'm just asking you guys, remember me being there. Remember what you saw. Because he's calling him as a witness. You remember our labor and our toil. Labor here is the Greek kapos, which refers to toil, trouble, difficulty. And toil is mukthos, which according to Strong's, by implication is sadness, toil, painfulness, travail. It's a kind of labor that is a genuine hardship. So these are strong synonymous terms here which are often combined together and they speak of hard and exhausting labor. Paul's talking about when we were with you, you remember, we worked ourselves to the bone, okay? We worked, he says. Now listen, here's what's interesting. In Greek society, designated labor was only for slaves. The Greeks looked down on manual labor. They didn't like that. 
But Paul was a Jew, and he respected manual labor. He often encouraged it, especially in this Thessalonian correspondence. We'll get to this later, but some in the fellowship there at Thessalonica had quit their jobs to wait for the second coming. They're still waiting. (laughs) Why would they quit their jobs? Paul says, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Now, he's referring to the fact here that he worked hard making tents. If you go to Acts 18, 1-4, Paul talks about the fact that he was a tent maker by trade. That was what he did. And he did this so they didn't have to take any support from the Thessalonians. He didn't want to take money from the churches he was planting. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, he says he didn't even eat anybody's food without paying. So while Paul's there ministering, you have him over for dinner. Let me, I got to pay for this. I can't take, I can't take it from you. If it, you know, I mean, that, that is crazy. Why was he so adamant not to take any help from them? Was Paul against paying people for service? Not at all. Let me tell you something about the rabbis. And by the way, Paul was a rabbi, okay? All rabbis had to have a trade. They had to have a livelihood. And Paul, as a rabbinic student of Gamaliel, was obligated to learn a vocation. He was a tent maker. He could provide for himself. He followed the tradition of the Jewish rabbis. And to them, receiving money for teaching the law was considered shameful. They didn't want to do that. Now, here's what's interesting. Elsewhere throughout the scriptures, Paul taught that it is legitimate for the person who labors in the gospel to be supported by the gospel. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 6, 6. And look what he says to Timothy. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, now he's quoting the Tanakh, You shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. Okay, the idea that the the ox is walking around treading out the grain, don't put a muzzle on him, he gets to eat, he's working. Let him eat, okay? And the laborer deserves his wages. I think we all understand that. So that's what Paul's saying here. The double honor here refers to both respect that is due to a faithful pastor who teaches the Word of God and also financial support. So as an apostle, Paul had the right to be supported by the gospel. But he chose to give up that right so as not to cause any hindrance to the gospel that he was in it for the money. Now, while he was ministering at Thessalonica, Timothy several times brought him money from Philippi. He's in Thessalonica ministering, and the Philippians are saying, let's take up a collection and send it down to Paul to help him out. But he still worked night and day. So he would take support from other churches, but he avoided the appearance of taking advantage of the new believers. And he wouldn't take support from the church where he's currently serving because they didn't want anybody to say, oh, he's just there trying to get money from you people. Because we talked about this, the pagan philosophers, and they they did that kind of stuff. They tried to prey on the people. Paul said, nope, you're not going to have anything to accuse me of. I'm not going to let you. I'm not taking any money. And another factor here in Thessalonica is this church in Thessalonica was very, very poor. Okay? Now, there were some people there with money, like there always is, but most of the people were poor. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given 
among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, Thessalonica is in Macedonia, so they're one of these churches. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. What he is saying here, he's using these people as an example again, but this time they're an example of giving because they're very generous, they're very sacrificial, and they sent an offering to Paul to help take care of the poor saints in Jerusalem. But they did this, he said, out of their extreme poverty. They didn't have much, but they gave what they could to help the saints in Jerusalem. All right, so Paul, that's why he didn't want to take any money. He didn't want to be accused of anything. They were poor. Verse 10 says, Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you who believe. All right, now here's what's interesting. He calls them witnesses again, but he adds another witness, God also. Okay, so he's got two witnesses, right? And the Old Covenant law demanded two witnesses to adequately corroborate a statement. So did the New Testament. You got two witnesses. It's not one person trying to say something about somebody. You got two. And he says, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. Listen, guys, think back. And I'm going to also call God to witness here, too, that when we were with you, this is how we acted. Holy here is hasios. This term is not the same which we commonly hear holy hagios. It speaks of the way people conform to what was ordained or permitted by the deity. Now, such people acted piously. That's kind of the, a good word for here. How we were acting piously. It describes conduct that conforms to divine laws. Socrates said to have been satisfied with being just in his dealings with men and religious, hosios, in his attitude towards the gods. Not only that, he says, we were dikaios, we were righteous. This stresses the relationship in, involved with other people, all right, in a matter consistent with the directives. In other words, we were honest, we were trustworthy, we were pure, we were charitable, we acted in love, we acted right towards God, we acted right towards men. And he says, we were blameless, amemtos, it means free from charges or blame. Again, this is why he didn't take money. He didn't want any false. It would have been false, but he didn't want it. This doesn't mean sinless. It means free from blame. Though he and his partners had been accused of doing wrong, the charges were false. They were very upright among them. The testimony that a person lived blameless appears frequently in ancient epigraphs, and especially in funerary inscriptions to describe people who had faithfully fulfilled the obligations throughout their life. All right, so these people were blameless. But Paul emphatically states that their actions conform to both divine and human law, and in all this they acted blamelessly. You know, Paul never said, hey, look, people, don't look at me, don't follow me, you just follow the Lord. That's kind of a cop-out, okay? That's not what Paul said. What did Paul say? Follow me. As I follow Christ. I'm following Christ, you follow me. We'll all be good, okay? He wanted people to look to Yeshua, but he said, you can see him in me. So it's not this idea of, well, I'm just a human, don't, don't focus on me, keep your eyes on God. We're supposed to, but we're supposed to be looking at each other who are bearing the image of God. In verse 11, he says, you know 
how like a father with his children. All right, again, he's already described the way a nursing mother cares for a child. Selflessly nourishing and caring for beloved offspring. There's a sense in which Paul's ministry was like that, but as the infant grows into childhood and then beyond into adulthood, the father has a very important leadership role to play. Like a good father, Paul didn't burden his children to support him. Okay, he's not trying to get his kids, hey, you got to take care of me. No, that's not how it works, all right? He provided spiritual leadership and protection for them. A father's responsibility is to set the standard of integrity in the family. That's a leader's responsibility, a spiritual leader. And he says in verse 12, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own glorious kingdom. Note the emphasis here on each one. While Paul dealt with the church, and I'm sure the church gathered many times and he taught them as a group, he dealt with them individually. We exhorted each one of you. All right, We went to each of you and we exhorted you. This is parakaleo, and it conveys the meaning of to exhort, to encourage. It's the idea of encouraging a person to certain contact. This is a paraclete, the word used for the Holy Spirit. This important New Testament word has both a prospective appeal in a sense to obey and respond, and a retrospect appeal in the sense of comfort and courage. And you know, children really need both. They need encouraging and they need challenging. The emphasis here is on the former idea because the synonym which follows, encouraged, this is an adverbial participle, paramuteomai, and it conveys the idea of encourage, cheer on, console. And it's often used of one who has suffered some kind of tragedy or death of a loved one. But over and over, outside the New Testament, this word is encountered in context where one person seeks to encourage or persuade another to a certain type of action. Then he says, and we charged you. This is marturomai. And it suggests the idea of insisting or requiring that a certain course of action be adopted. What are they trying to do? He says, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you, what? To walk in a manner worthy of God. We constantly brought this to your idea. Walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk here is peripateo. It means to walk, to live, to conduct one's life. It literally means to walk or to walk around. While peripatao is used in the New Testament of one's literal walk, it's used metaphorically of our behavior, our conduct, the way we live. Walk, live, he's saying to them, listen, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you. In other words, we were firm when we needed to be, we were just supportive when we needed to be. We told you, live in a manner that it will be worthy of God. This metaphor refers to our continuing lifestyle, which needs to reflect our master. The norm that should govern the Christian walk is the life lived worthy of God. In a very similar way, Paul exhorts the Ephesians. He says, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received in Ephesians 4.1. And in Philippians, he calls believers to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27. 
And to the Colossians, he reminds believers to live a life worthy of the Lord. Colossians 1.10. Believers, how we live is important. We've been stressing this lately, okay? But it is important. It's very important. It's not important to the sense that if we don't live right, we're not going to be saved. It's important because we're image bearers of God. When people look at us, they need to see. This is what Christianity is. Look at me. This is how Christians are supposed to live. That's what we should be able to say. Later in this letter, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Yeshua that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. He said, you know, we've taught you how to please God by your life. We talked about this last week, how to please God. This is what we should be doing in our life. This is what our life is geared to. You know, believers, we're not here just to see how much money we can accumulate, how many things we can buy, how much fun we can have. We're here as servants of Christ to be image bearers, to show the world our God. And our walk, our life, is to be lived in a way that's pleasing to God. And he says, worthy of the God who calls you. Now, if you look this up, most people are going to say, well, this is referring to their election. Like 1-4, we talked about that. He was referring to election. But I don't think so here because who calls you is a present tense here. And it's not who called you, but who calls you. And it points to a continuous work of God, a work that is still going on. God had called them to salvation, and He's still calling them into the kingdom and glory because the kingdom had not yet been consummated. All right? And let me just add here that, again, there's a, a discrepancy in the Greek text. There's a variant tense here. First of all, some manuscripts, Aleph and A, have the aorist tense. That's like in Galatians 1.6. And that would emphasize God's initiating call. That would be referring to salvation, if that's, if that's how it's used here. But manuscripts B, Delta, F, G, H, K, L, and P have the present which would emphasize God's continuing call to holiness. Now, UBS 4, we talked about this before, it's a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. It gives option 2 as a B rating. A B rating means almost certain. So they're almost certain this is a present tense here. All right, He's calling you into this thing. What's he calling you into? His kingdom and glory. Now, the words kingdom and glory here are joined with and which probably indicates a hendiadis. You know what a hendiadis is, right? Okay, good, I thought so. We'll just go on then. <laughs> a hendiadis is an expression of a single idea by two words connected with and. Like we would say, it's nice and warm. That's a hendiasis. It's a figure of speech that can be translated here, it would be translated into his glorious kingdom. So Paul is referring to the kingdom of God here, which the Thessalonian Christians were already members. Now when you talk about the kingdom of God, it's interesting what you're going to hear people say. It hasn't come yet. Some people, it's come somewhat, but it's not fully. You know, you got all kinds of ideas. Some, it's already fully come. Only two texts in the Thessalonian epistles refer to the kingdom. Here and in 2 Thessalonians 1.5. In both instances, Paul refers to the worthiness of the Thessalonian believers to be part of this kingdom, all right? Now, here's what you have to understand about the kingdom of God. It's not a territory. It's not a landmass. 
The kingdom of God is the rule of God that had begun to be exercised in the present time, the present time of the writing here. Paul here speaks about the future coming of this kingdom, the time when God's glory will be fully revealed. So when is this to happen? That's the big discussion. When is the kingdom of God to come? Is it here now? Is it coming in the future? Well, if you remember, when Yeshua began to preach, He said the kingdom of God was at hand. Okay, so that's near. He's preaching, the kingdom of God is near. Later in His ministry, Yeshua said the kingdom of God had arrived. He says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, so let me ask you this, was He casting out demons by the Spirit of God? Yes, he was. Okay, here's what we have to understand. When Christ walked the earth, he walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. He did not exercise his deity. In other words, he said, I'm God, I can do this, I can do that trick. No, he walked in dependence as a man dependent on the Holy Spirit. That's how we're supposed to live. He didn't use his deity, all right? So if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, that's what he was doing, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So if the kingdom of God had come in the first century, it should be clear that the nature of the kingdom was spiritual. Okay? And we talked about this many times. Time defines nature. Yeshua said the kingdom has come, that's time, so the nature of the kingdom must be spiritual. I think that Yeshua tried to stress this point by saying that the kingdom of God did not come with observation in Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Is that, is that obtuse there? Is that clear? I mean, the kingdom of God's not going to come in ways you can observe. Oh, look at, there it is. There's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. No. The spiritual nature of the kingdom is easy to understand. If you just understand that the kingdom of God is synonymous with the church, the church is the kingdom of God. They're synonymous. The two words are used synonymously in Matthew 16, 18 through 19. The kingdom is the church. The church is the kingdom. Now, as you read various writers' view on the kingdom of God, you're going to come across many who talk about the already but not yet view of the kingdom. And those who hold this already but not yet view, they approach the study of the kingdom with the presupposition that there is at least a spiritual kingdom, which is already established. But there's a physical kingdom which yet to come. So it's already, but it's not yet. And this view accepts the spiritual nature of the kingdom and the time statements that clearly teach it arrived in the first century, but they still hold to a future physical kingdom that's going to come. And they do this because they don't understand the distinction of the ages or the clear scriptural teaching concerning the transition period. See, during the first century, the kingdom was already inaugurated. Yeshua said it had come. But it was not yet consummated. Look at Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We're receiving a kingdom. The word receiving here is the Greek word paralambano. And it's in the present tense showing progression. The kingdom was being brought into its fullness during the first century by progression. This kingdom can't be shaken. This kingdom is the church of Christ, Yeshua. 
It is the new covenant. It is Mount Zion. It is heavenly Jerusalem. Now, the thing about the already but not yet, that is a legitimate principle during the first century. But the kingdom was fully consummated in A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed. And with destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple, the already but not yet ended. There is no already but not yet. It's just already now. All right? There's no not yet anymore. So believers, Paul is, you know, he's defending himself here. He's trying to put off the attack that the opponents are putting on him. And he's telling them, look, just, just look at our lives. And just look how we walked and how we treated you. Let me ask you, who could be negative about pastors, about a missionary team that are compassionate like a nursing mom? That are attentive like a nursing mom? And they're concerned like a caring father for the spiritual welfare of their home. You know, to demean or to tear down Paul's ministry meant that the accusers either knew nothing about him or they're just plain lying. Because this wasn't Paul at all. And Paul lived godly and he says to them, listen, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charge you, walk in a manner worthy of God. Believers, that's a calling for every single one of us. We're to walk in a manner worthy of God. How do we do that? We get in the Scriptures, we find out what the Scriptures say, and we live that way. It's a high calling. It's not an easy life. The temptations are unbelievable out there. They come at us in every form. But let me tell you what, when you get on the path with the Lord and you're walking with the Lord and the fellowship with the Lord, this is the most incredible thing you'll ever experience because your circumstances almost don't even matter anymore because you're in fellowship. As we do this, as we walk in the path, as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we're to be calling other believers to do the same thing. Hey, come on, follow me. Let's go this way. Follow the Lord. And as we disciple believers, it includes that time mothering. Being gentle, being caring, attentive, supportive. And other times it involves fathering. Being strong, being courageous, encouraging them to move on. This is our calling, people. Be strong. At times it involves mothering. At times it involves fathering. But at all times, it involves walking in a manner worthy of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Father, as we examine it, I just ask you to give us the heart of Bereans. We would not accept things, not reject things. We would study things to see if they are so. Give us the desire, Lord, to look in the word of God, to read it on a regular basis, to be familiar with it, Lord, that we know what it is you want from us, that we know who you are. And know how we are to live. Father, I pray we would walk in a manner worthy of you. That we would bring a smile, Lord, to your face. Amen.